Well, good morning, brothers and sisters and visitors. It is, it is good to gather with you this morning in praise to our God who, who says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. In case I haven't met yet, my name is Kelton. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here of Stafford Baptist Church. Please come and introduce yourself to me afterwards uh, at the door. We continue in our worship this morning now by hearing God's word proclaimed. So please, if you would, open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26. As always, you'll be helped this morning by keeping your Bibles open, as I'll be referring back to it frequently. Genesis chapter 26. Abraham 2.0. But before we read, would you please pray with me once more for our hearing and for the proclaiming of God's word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we say all that we have needed, your hand has provided, because great is your faithfulness to us. We pray that you would again provide what we need by your hand in your faithfulness to us. Give us this morning the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you, that we might this morning know the blessings that are ours by your grace in Christ. So, Lord, open up your word to us that we might see the glories of our Savior who is with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I wonder, how do you consider yourself blessed? How do you consider yourself blessed? I looked up the hashtag blessed on Twitter this week. It's a way to label posts based on the topic. And this is something of what I found. One man was declaring himself for the NFL draft. Another celebrating the 105th birthday of a friend. A third celebrating 100 days to graduation and only 94 days until their wedding. Another posting a picture of their 14 children and 11 grandchildren. Many were about recent sports accomplishments, winning a game or or a championship. How about you? If I looked up the hashtag blessed on your life, what in your personal feed would you label as blessed? Is it birthdays, weddings, graduations, family, accomplishments? You know, all all people experience, even if it's just life, blessings from God. But Christians themselves can call themselves the most blessed. Not because of long life, not at least, not yet, or the size of our, our families or the things that we accomplish. It is because God is with us. We have the, the promise, the comfort, the assurance of God's presence with us. In our passage this morning, Moses highlights the fact that the highest blessing God bestows on Isaac is his presence with him. The chapter we're going to study this morning is the compressed life story of Isaac. You know, Moses devotes 11 chapters to the story of of Abraham, his father, but only one to his son Isaac. And when you read it, it's like the highlight reel of Abraham's own life. 
Nearly every element is a rerun from the life of his father. Well, Moses' point here is to show us that as God has dealt with the father, so he will deal with the son and he will do for us. God's faithfulness in the past can be counted on in the present and in the future. But in particular, the blessing that God bestows on Isaac comes in the form of God's presence. Even in the midst of of hardship and trouble, God is with him. And for that, he should count himself blessed beyond measure. We too, this morning, brothers and sisters, have the comfort, the assurance of God's presence. And we should count ourselves blessed beyond measure. So let's read of God's faithfulness by his presence with Isaac, starting in Genesis chapter 26, verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the man of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring, spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth. 
saying, for now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him in the, the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, saying that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us. Let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done nothing to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. The word of the Lord. I wonder, did you notice as we read three times the mention of God's presence? Just to get oriented as we start, let's look at those first. Find, find verse 3. Verse 3. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. Do, do you see it there? Note the future tense. I will be with you. Scan down with me then to, to verse 24. Verse 24. Now in Beersheba, the Lord appeared to him at the, the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant's sake. Again, the promise of blessing but here are uh, the present tense. I am with you. And finally, verse 28. Now the voice of Abimelech. They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you. Then at the end of verse 29, you are now the blessed of the Lord. Note the past tense. That God has been with you. And all of these tied to God's blessing. Like the, the chorus of a song, three times in this chapter, Moses notes God's presence with Isaac. I will be with you. I am with you. I have been with you. And because God is faithful, this is no difference, different for us. He remembers his covenant. So our big idea this morning as we start studying this passage is this. God is still faithful to his promise to bless us with his presence. God is still faithful to his promise to bless us with his presence. Despite even the, the sin we see from Isaac in this passage, God is abundant in giving him the highest blessing he can bestow, his own presence. And as God has been with our forefathers, so he will be with us. God is still faithful to his promise to bless us with his presence. 
We're going to see that in three points this morning, coupled with the three times God's presence is noted. First, the promise of God's presence in verses 1 through 5. Second, the comfort of God's presence, that in verses 6 to 25. And finally, the assurance of God's presence, that in 26 through 35. The promise of God's presence, the comfort of God's presence, and finally, the assurance of God's presence. As we go this morning, brothers and sisters, I I pray that the Lord would make known to us, even this morning, the the blessing of His presence, that we would all count ourselves blessed. Well, let's start at the top then, the promise of God's presence in the first five verses, the promise of God's presence. Well, sometime after the events of chapter 25, the, the birth of His two sons, and their, their foolish trade, according to the election of God, there is, he says, a famine in the land. A famine in the land. And to be clear, Moses writes, this is beside the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. Do you guys remember that? It was one of the first events Moses recorded in Abraham's journey of faith. He was called out of Ur, To go to the promised land, he received very great promises of of land, of offspring, of blessing. And after the long trek, some 1,500 miles, and and arriving in the land, there is a famine. The start of Genesis chapter 12, verse 10 in in Abraham's story is word for word how chapter 26, 1 starts. Now there was a famine in the land. And this is the first clue of what Moses is doing for us in this chapter. This condensed life of Isaac is meant to be a mirror of Abraham. Depending on how detailed you want to count, there are at least 14 elements of Isaac's life that repeat what happened in Abraham's life. Especially if you've been with us for this series, I'm sure they were familiar to you. But let me point them out just to make it clear. 14 ways Isaac life mirrors Abraham. First, both start with a famine in the land. Second, both in famine head toward Egypt, though God stops Isaac on the way. Three, both are said to have the Lord appear to them. Four, both receive from God the promise of land, of offspring, and blessing. Five, both sojourn in Gerar. Six, in Gerar, both are afraid for their lives. So in seven, both lie about their wives, being their sisters, to protect themselves. And eight, both are caught in the lie by the king. Nine, both are rebuked by that king who asks them both, what have you done to us? And ten, both are protected by the righteous Gentile king. Eleven, both prosper materially. Twelve, their prosperity leads to quarrels. Abraham, if you remember, with the the shepherds of Lot. But here Isaac with the shepherds of Gerar. Thirteen, both make an oath with Abimelech because of their prosperity. And fourteen, both of them make that oath at Beersheba. No, this isn't deja vu. Moses ran out of material, has to come up with something new. No, no, no. I present this preponderance of evidence to make it absolutely clear that that though Isaac's life isn't the same as Abraham's, it is meant to mirror it. That's why we call this Abraham 2.0, if you will. The second version. 
You know, I am sure other things happened in Isaac's life. He will actually live slightly longer than Abraham, 180 years. But this is the only chapter of the events of his life that we have in Genesis. Why is that? Well, Moses is being selective. Biblical history is not just fact for the sake of it. Here are all the details of Isaac's life. No. What Moses is doing is theology through history. Moses writes to instruct his audience, the the Israelites wandering in the desert, and, and for us too. He is showing that just like in Abraham's life, God is faithful to his promises. What he has done for the fathers in 11 chapters, here we see in summary in one, he will also do for the sons, and on and on and on. God is faithful to every generation, and he is still faithful. And how in particular is God faithful to Isaac as he was to Abraham? And so will he be to you and to me? Well, first off, right at the start, it doesn't mean avoiding hardship. Abraham's trial of famine wasn't unique to him. Isaac experiences it too. It will not be the last. This is actually what brings all of Israel to Egypt in Joseph's generation. And in fact, the nation of Israel that that Moses is writing to experienced their their own famine in the desert, if you will. Moses says later to this nation in Deuteronomy 8.3, God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see what Moses is saying, that that God brings hardship into their life so that they might learn. He brings trials in his faithfulness to humble us, to test us, and to give us something even better, to teach us spiritual truths. Just at the outset, brothers and sisters, I wonder what trial you're going through. Do you expect God's faithfulness to you to mean no trials? Or do you understand that his faithfulness means that in the trial, he has good purposes? How is it that God intends in that trial to humble you, to depend on him, and to give you something better, knowledge of truth? But that's just verse 1. Now, there was a famine in the land. There's so much more here for us. Look at the rest of verse 1. Isaac heads south. To Gerar. But the implication is that his intent was to head further south like his father before him. Egypt had the advantage of the Nile. Even in famine, Egypt was always well watered. That's why God, in, in verse 2, appears to him, just as he had with Abraham many times, and this time to tell Isaac not to go to Egypt. Let me reread verses 2 through 5. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, 
and my laws. Well, I'm, I'm sure you notice it. This is, in substance, the Abrahamic covenant. This is the promise that God made unilaterally to Abram, the, the pagan moon worshiper in Genesis 12, that is now passed on to his son Isaac. You'll remember Genesis 12, 1 through 3, promised to Abraham very great promises of, of land, of numerous offspring, that he would be a blessing to the nations. And all three are repeated here. What we see advancing here is, is the promise that, that through Abraham and his family, God is beginning to undo the curse brought by Adam's sin to bring salvation and restoration to blessing. In the fall, Adam and Eve cast out of the garden. Mankind lost our communion with God, the relationship with our Creator that we were made for. But here, in, in this family, God is beginning to make a way for us to return to the garden, if you will, where God walked with His people. One day, through this family, all nations will be blessed through a descendant of this family, the son of, the son of, and so on, of Abraham, Jesus Christ. But, but if you notice, the, the root and center of all these promises, land, seed, and blessing, is God himself. These gifts of grace are a part of what it means for God to be with Isaac. The heart of the promise is there in verse 3 that we've already noted. I will be with you and bless you. I will be with you and bless you. You don't get the second blessing without the first. I will be with you. God's blessing does not come apart from His presence. So here in the midst of trials, God promises Isaac His presence. As he looks to the future, he, he has this hope. Wherever it may lead, God will be with him. Well, let's be clear here, church. God is present everywhere. He is what we call omnipresent. This is one of God's perfections for which he's due praise. No one and nothing else in creation is omnipresent. The theologian uh, Wayne Grudem defines omnipresence like this. God does not have size or spatial dimensions and is present at every point of space with his whole being. Yet God acts differently in different places. God is outside of his creation. He created it all. So he doesn't have any of the properties of, of matter, like spatial dimensions. He is everywhere with his entire being. Well, so when the Bible talks about him being with someone, what does that mean? Isn't he everywhere completely? Well, Wayne Grudem goes on to explain, God is present in different ways in different places. God acts differently in different places in his creation. Sometimes God is present to punish. At other times, God is present neither to punish nor to bless, but merely to sustain. But most of the time the Bible talks about God's presence, it is referring to God's presence to bless. So yes, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere, but he is present in different ways. So in shorthand, when we read in the Bible that he is with someone, like he does here to Isaac, it means that he is present to bless. 
You know, God is present in this building and in your home. He is present also in temples and mosques. He's present in hell, too. But God acts differently in different places. He is present in hell to pour out his righteous wrath on the devil and his angels. He isn't specifically present in church buildings. No, his presence is promised with his people. The bricks of the new temple are the people. And where those people gather, whether here or in the gym like we did last year, or if we needed to in a field, God is present with his people to bless. God makes it absolutely clear there in verse 3. His presence is a presence to bless. Isaac need not fear the famine because God is with him. He can stay in the parched land because God is the fount of all his blessings. Well, who, who is it that can have this hope of God's presence? In other words, where is God present to bless and where to punish? Well, Isaiah 59.2 says it's, it's our sins that separate us from God's presence to bless. Isaiah 59.2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Yes, he is present even with the sinners, but the Bible speaks of our iniquities separating us from God and his presence to bless. The only people that have God's promise of presence to bless are those who have had their sins dealt with. It is for those who by faith have taken refuge in the only sacrifice for sins, Jesus Christ. So if that describes you, taking refuge in the blood of Jesus Christ for your sins, then this promise, I will be with you to bless you, is for you. The promise of God's blessing. So as you look to the future, Christian, with whatever it holds, what, what looms large? Maybe it's unexpected surgery. A big decision. Life without a family member. Or life with a new family member. Whatever it is, God promises he will be with you to bless you. The trial he brings you to, he will bring you through for your good. I don't expect it or hope it, but maybe this year will bring your death. Yes, it is possible. And if it does, God will still be faithful. Even then, God will be with you to bring you through. God is faithful to us. Like with Isaac, God will be present with us in the future. Whatever it holds, and that should lead us to current obedience. You see Isaac, in verse 6, settled in Gerar. He stays according to the command of God. And that brings us to our second point in verses 6 through 25, the comfort of God's presence. Our second point, the comfort of God's presence. Based on the promise of God's presence, in verse 6, Isaac obeys. But how short-lived is it? He trades one fear for another. In verse 7, we see a new fear grip Isaac's heart, that the Philistines will kill him. 
to take his beautiful wife, Rebecca. So he does exactly what his father Abraham did in Egypt, in Genesis 12, and in Gerar, in Genesis 20. He lies. Of course, with, with Abraham, it, it was a, a half-truth. Sarah really was his half-sister, but, but there is not even a hint of truth for Isaac here. But we see the lie succeeds for, for a long time in verse 8, when he had been there a long time, until the king sees Isaac and Rebekah laughing. The Hebrew suggests something more. It's interesting. In, in Egypt, God used plagues to protect Sarah. Remember the plagues on Pharaoh's house? In Gerar, for Abraham, God used a dream to warn Abimelech of what was happening. Well, here, God just uses the king glancing out the window at exactly the right time. Yes, God can use miracles and the mundane both to protect his people. Well, in verses 9 through 11, the the king confronts and rebukes Isaac. Here, the the Gentile king is is more righteous and God-fearing than Isaac. He recognizes that that because of of Isaac's deception, someone may have brought guilt upon them. And actually, in that, Abimelech is affirming God's omnipresence. He knows that, that God is here, present even in this Gentile kingdom, present to judge those who sin against him. Well, we're left wondering, how, how? Could Isaac so quickly forget the promise of God's presence? How did he obey God when fearing one danger, famine, and so easily fall victim to another fear? Well, maybe it's not hard for us to wonder that every Christian can relate. Lion-hearted obedience in one area, but entangled in sin in another. I wonder, if you think... If you asked Isaac at this very moment, what had God promised to him? Do you think he could have given you the right answer? But knowing the truth is not enough. It must be believed and applied. Mere mental awareness of what God promises is not what we're after. The the truths of God's promises must settle so deeply into our hearts that they they control us. They guide everything we do. Frankly, some of us have forgotten God's promises too. Sure, you might be able to recount them. You're mentally aware of them, but you're being controlled by some other lie. You know that those sins are forgiven, but you still carry the burden of shame. You know that you have an advocate with the Father, but still you defend yourself from every conviction of sin. You know that Jesus could come back at, every, at any moment, but still you live as if the world is all there is. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we need an Abimelech, someone else to see the inconsistencies of our lives and point them out to us. Receive them as God's mercy, that your heart might be united to fear God's name. God is merciful, faithful to his promise, even in our inconsistencies. 
That's what we see here with the story of Isaac. In verse 12, we see that God is faithful to his promise to Isaac despite his sin. To be with him, to bless him. Even in the midst of famine, Isaac reaps a hundredfold, a a robust harvest. Read the end of, of verse 12 with me. The Lord blessed him. The Lord blessed him. His material prosperity, his, his harvest is evidence of God's blessing, of his presence with him. Isaac's sin has not disqualified him from God's blessing because it wasn't his righteousness that qualified him in the first place. It was God's grace. And this is the message of the Bible through and through. God's grace is scandalous. God doesn't bless us because of our obedience. No, he blesses us and therefore we obey. And I think that's, that's the opposite natural instinct of our hearts, even for Christians. We think naturally that, that God only blesses us based on our performance. And that when we fail, his blessings will disappear. Some of us today might be motivated to obey God in order to receive his blessings. And one of the challenges is that those who are motivated by grace and those who are motivated by performance look the same. Both read their Bible, pray, give, serve. But the reason, what's going on in their heart is very different. So I wonder, does, does God's blessing of Isaac feel too scandalous to you? That maybe God should have withheld the harvest until Isaac cleaned up his act. Well, if that's, if that's you, you have yet to, to grasp the true depth of your sin and the true nature of God's grace. Our sins deserve nothing but God's Good judgment. He is utterly and completely holy. Even the righteous deeds that we do, he describes like filthy rags before him. Your sin, my sin, is so great that depending on your performance before God will only ever earn God's disapproval. But the good news is that Jesus came to perform perfect righteousness for you. You can depend on on His perfect righteousness, His perfect performance as a gift of grace. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that the punishment they deserve has been paid for by His death. And God raised Him up from the grave after three days to declare victory over death. So now for all who repent of their sins and trust in Christ's death, you stand in scandalous grace. Despite your sin, you receive blessing, all the blessings that Christ deserves, not what your sins deserve. Friends, this is grace and it is scandalous. And it is the message of the Bible, our only hope. Because God is gracious, Isaac here receives blessings that he did not deserve. 
And so do all who depend on him by faith and not by works. Well, because of his material prosperity by God's grace, in verse 16, Abimelech is compelled to ask Isaac to leave. He has grown too strong. He's too much of a threat. So Isaac goes, and in verses 17 through 21, he digs out the wells that had been buried. But still, his, his herdsmen quarrel with, with the Philistines. So he has to go further and further until he finds room. In verse 22, at the well, he calls Rehoboth. Well, here at the end of the scene with Gerar, God appears to him again. In verse 24, let me read verse 24 and 25 again. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Here, brothers and sisters, is the answer to Isaac's fear all along. Fear not. He says, why? Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you. God's presence with him is meant to bring comfort in the face of his fears. I am with you and will bless you. His presence is a presence to bless. And notice, brothers and sisters, Isaac's response, it's, it's instructive. He builds an altar and worships God. The proper response to, to God's grace in his comfort of presence is worship. It is adoration and thanksgiving and, and humility and, and awe. If you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, thank you for being with us. As much as God's presence is meant to be a comfort and, and elicit the worship of Christians... It should also be, be sobering. Imagine thinking of God's presence with us. Imagine when you're in an argument, saying those things, Jesus sitting on the couch next to you. Imagine Jesus proofreading all your emails and your tweets. Jesus is there when no one else is. In, in fact, he goes deeper than we ourselves can. His, his omnipresence means he is fully present in our hearts. More inward even than your heart. The Bible teaches us that we are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. What, what can we do? There's only one thing we can do. Herman Bavink says it well. But since there is one more inward than even yourselves, there is no place where you may flee from God angry, but to God reconciled. There is no place at all where you may flee. Will you flee from him? Flee unto him. The only place that you can go to escape God is God himself. To God reconciled, he says. To God through the forgiveness offered in Jesus Christ. That is the only place that we can find refuge. And that's true for, for you too, Christian. 
in the, in the conviction of sin, flee to the only place where you can truly hide in God reconciled by trusting in the death of Christ for you. With God reconciled in, instead of the terror of his presence, we will know the comfort of his presence. So we have the, the promise of God's presence, the, the comfort of God's presence. Let's look at the final verses and conclude with the assurance of God's presence. Our third point, the assurance of God's presence. With a well finally dug in Beersheba and, and Isaac's tent assembled, we now, he now entertains some guests. In verse 26, Abimelech and his party arrive in almost the same way they did with Abraham. Isaac is understandably confused. Weren't you the guys that, that told me to leave? What do you want with me now? Well, let's reread verses 28 and 29. They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So he said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as have we have not touched you and have done, done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. You are now the blessed of the Lord. This Gentile king sees it clearly that the Lord has been with him. And so he wants to make a covenant with Isaac to secure peace. He knows that, that with God's presence, nothing can stop Isaac. So looking back, it is clear to Abimelech that, that Isaac's prosperity is from God. Why do I call this the assurance of God's presence? Well, assurance is the idea that we can have confidence about our salvation. Not just objectively that God is able to save, but, but subjectively that the able God has saved me. Put yourself in Isaac's shoes. Can you imagine being Isaac and hearing a Gentile, someone who has no loyalty to Yahweh, coming to tell you, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. I think a statement like that would destroy even the possibility of doubt that God is present with him to bless him. Even those who claim no faith in God say they see evidence of God in your life. So looking back on his life, Isaac should have assurance based on the evidence that God has been with him to bless him. The evidence is not just his own miraculous birth or the miraculous provision of a wife, but in the gift of, of his two sons after 20 years, of God appearing to him, establishing the oath with him, protecting him, giving him more and more wealth, the provision of the land. And, and now, on top of that, all the testimony of this Gentile. I see it too. Can anyone see that in your life, Christian? The evidence of God's presence with you to bless. Of course, in the new covenant, God doesn't bless us in the same way. His presence in our lives is not by material prosperity, but, but far better, spiritual prosperity. I quoted it last week, but I have reason again. It's as Paul writes in Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with a hundredfold harvest. 
No, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing is for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, I I know of some churches that teach that the, the way that we can make the gospel attractive to unbelievers is by how materially prosperous and fulfilling our lives are. If we're rich and happy, the gospel looks great. Well, I admire their desire to make the gospel attractive, but sin can make you materially prosperous as well, and far more often. Jesus himself was homeless. He died at 33. He didn't have the blessings of wealth in a long life. But what blessings did Jesus have? Well, unlike any other person to ever live, the presence of God with him. Evidence of the Holy Spirit coming down in his baptism. Evident in his miracles, in his authority, his love, and in more than anything else, his resurrection from the dead. No, the way that God makes his presence known with us is not in material prosperity necessarily, but in spiritual blessings. It is in the fruit of the Spirit who bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. It is evidence in our confession from the heart of of sin and of faith in Jesus. It is in our obedience and love and in affirming true doctrine. Last week we thought about the doctrine of election, the fact that that God's blessings are not bestowed or or inherited by by birth and earned by by behavior, but but are simply bestowed by His, His mercy. But Scripture goes on actually to to tell us to make our calling and election sure. Second Peter one ten, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And how are we to do that? How do we confirm our election? Well, in Second Peter, it's by practicing the qualities of faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. In Christ, with every spiritual blessing, the evidence of our assurance is not in our harvest, but qualities like these. Brothers and sisters, do you see these qualities in your life as evidence of God's presence with you? Do other Christians see evidence in your life of God's presence to bless in faith, in godliness, in love? More than that, do non-Christians who know you see evidence that these inward blessings are with you? So much so that they might say, we see plainly that Jesus has been with you. Like Abimelech to Isaac. God's work in your life, evident to you and all, should lead to the assurance that God is present with you to bless you by grace. So church, again, how do you call yourself blessed? Maybe not with long life yet, or a large family, or or all that you've accomplished, but blessed with the presence of God evident in His spiritual blessings. The promises of God to Abraham and Isaac are just a shadow of what is to come in the new covenant secured by Christ's blood. 
Not just things like land and and offspring, but the, the future blessings it anticipated. He came to secure for us the greatest blessing possible. Restored relationship with our triune God by grace. And that grace, friends, is a scandal. Your sins, my sins that deserve God's good indignation, but in Christ we receive the immeasurable riches of the greatest treasure in all of creation, His presence with you, now and forever. Do you call yourself blessed? The chorus of our lives Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. We'll sing in a minute, church, that there is now no more for heaven to give. Oh, how strange and divine. I can sing all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's pray. Father, that is the course of our lives in Christ. Blessings all mine. Your own dear presence to guide and to cheer. Lord, with 10,000 beside. Lord, we give you thanks this morning for the promise, for the comfort, and for the assurance of your presence with us. Not by our deserving, but because of your grace to us in Christ. Father, we pray this morning that your presence with us would sober us in our sin and give us comfort in our fears. Lord, that we would live with knowledge that you are with us and you will be with us all the way, even through death. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.